Song number 767 has been announced, and we will use that, of course, later in our service this evening. So good to see each and every one who has chosen to come back on this Sunday afternoon to avail yourself of the health and the opportunity that God has given to us to assemble and offer our worship, to offer our praiseworthy adoration of Him. As you probably have noticed in the bulletin, our lesson tonight will surround questions and answers as we, from time to time, are more than happy to give consideration to those questions placed in the box out there. And as always, may I invite you to do that if there's a particular subject or topic. In fact, even one of these questions, if I have not done it justice, if perhaps you're the one that asked it, but I have not, in fact, answered what you particularly had in mind, just write the question again, and maybe I can do a better job at least giving careful thought to what you had in mind. Every time we have these lessons, of course, the, the goal is to merely utilize the particular time that we have to address the questions or at least the concerns that you may have. The lesson text that was read just a moment ago seems to be a very fair one to move us in, in the direction of a lesson like this one. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. And isn't it interesting then that the Word of God does have the answers, and so if you and I will rightly divide it and at least give attention to the questions that are raised, maybe we can at least make some hopeful suggestions and hopeful approaches to those matters. Questions tonight, as always, are very good ones. You always ask uh, superb questions. The first one will be this one. As always, I like to read the particulars of the way in which it's worded. And so let me get out the sheet that has on it the way that those are worded, and I'll share with you the, the, the nature of the question itself. I know someone who believes, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine thinks it's saying you should be baptized for the dead. This person's denomination practices this act also. Please explain exactly what this verse means so I can discuss this with him. If you'd be turning to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be looking in some detail at verse 29 of that chapter in just a moment. That's the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. At first, when you and I come to a question like this one, may I be quick to say... Almost certainly, that single verse of the 58 verses in that chapter has been one that has been the subject of a fair amount of controversy. And you and I probably are well aware that there is one major denominational group in this country that's well known for its practice of what they think this verse teaches. May I read verse 29? Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? The particular group of which I speak is, of course, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They are well known for their adherence to the thought that this verse teaches is perfectly right. And in fact, it is in order to be baptized for somebody who has already died. In fact... Some years ago, there was an individual who made a rather direct statement. I wouldn't say it's boastful, but at least direct. He said, I was immersed this week on behalf of Aaron Burr. Now, he lived back, of course, at the time of the founding fathers of this country. He's well known, of course, as one who 
had a great deal of opposition to some of the well-known matter or people of our founding fathers. But the fact is, that's well over 200 years ago. And this person today claimed I was baptized for his sins. Now, this person who wrote this question made the statement that, so what does this verse teach? Does it offer credence to that line of thinking? Is it such that that is consistent with what the Bible teaches? Well, I'm going to divide this into a couple of parts, one of which will be developed on the slide before you. I think it entirely wise to point out evidently the following. What does this verse not teach? Sometimes that's one of the clearest matters we can settle in our heart and then try to reconcile what then a verse is saying with other verses to help us in a clear way appreciate the overall teaching of that verse. Does this verse teach that you and I can be immersed for the forgiveness of someone's sins who has already died? Absolutely not. It would be absolutely contradictory to so many other verses if that is anything even close to what Paul had in mind here. And in fact, on that slide before you, consider just a sampling of matters that move us in the direction of settling in our heart the fact that cannot be the issue of this verse. And then once that is settled, then we'll turn our attention to what it does say. First of all, the entirety of the Word of God is true and it's consistent and it nowhere contradicts anywhere. In fact, in Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of thy word is truth. Didn't Jesus go on to say in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And later on, we notice easily then that verse that was read just a moment ago, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. What would it be saying about God if He gave us a book and there were legitimate contradictions in it. If he had said something in one location, addressing a certain matter, and then in a very similar situation said exactly different, that is to say what cannot possibly be reconciled between the two, then what confidence would we be able to have in God? Clearly very, very little. But on the other hand, looking at some of the statements on that particular slide, could I invite you to perhaps think, about this thought. Isn't it true that individual, personal response and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is required of one and all? Nobody can obey on the part of anybody else. Now that not only touches matters connected to baptism and salvation, it connects to everything else too. I can't give for somebody else, and neither can you. I can't take the Lord's Supper for anybody else, and neither can you. I can't sing for anybody else, and neither can you. I can't attend worship services on behalf in a proxy way for somebody else, and neither can you. There's nothing in the Christian religion that can be done in a proxy fashion for the salvational benefit of somebody else. Aren't we reminded when it comes to the matters of judgment? So then every one of us shall give account of himself, singular pronoun, to God, Romans 14, 12. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 
Now, all those things remind us that we, of course, will give an individual account before God, and that means no one else could have been baptized for me. No one else could have participated in any other particular activities, the result of which would be my eternal, eternal entrance into heaven. And so we should, in fact, almost immediately put out of our mind that cannot be what this verse teaches. It cannot possibly mean that an individual could submissively be immersed for the benefit, in a spiritual fashion, of someone long since deceased. It is with that in mind we might close that opening slide at least and perhaps say it like this. It seems to me that there is in fact a clear-cut example in the Bible that would fly in the absolute face of a statement like this and it's in John 14 or John 17 verse number 12. If you hold your finger in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage and turn back to John 17, notice a statement our Lord made on that occasion. Now, you might recall that this was the day before Jesus Himself was crucified. And it was a very fateful evening in which He shared many things with the apostles. But verse number 12, the Lord did make this statement. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in Thy name. Those that Thou gavest to me, I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, each of us know the one of whom the Lord spoke. Judas Iscariot was the one that was the son of perdition. He's the one that chose to be the renegade. He's the one that chose to, in fact, turn his back on the Master, and he would shortly, of course, betray him. But may I ask this question? Jesus just said, I've lost nobody but him. If the feeling of... 1 Corinthians 15, 29 is true. Couldn't you and I be baptized for Judas' chariot? And couldn't we get him into heaven that way? And that would make Jesus a liar if that was true. The Lord would have lied. And we know that's an impossibility. So in other words, the whole idea behind 1 Corinthians 15, 29 cannot possibly mean that a person can again be baptized on behalf of someone else. But of course, having said that, it now asks the question, what is it saying? May I read it again? Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Now on this next slide, may I offer some thoughts that I think will be very productive in guiding our thinking to reconsider this particular passage the first matter that would be exceedingly helpful is to put clearly in mind the context of the larger degree of this chapter. The 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians from verse 1 to verse 58 is a chapter that is dedicated in a number of ways to a host of teachings, but all of them touch the same central theme. It is the resurrection. The chapter is not fundamentally about baptism. It's just that at this point, Paul makes reference to the idea of baptism to substantiate an argument he's making concerning the resurrection. To say that differently, he's using a well-known understanding connected to baptism to solidify an appreciation relative to the resurrection. Now, having said that, you'll notice on the slide, well, we try to develop some of those thoughts like this. 
again, consider it like this. The Corinthian congregation was such that there were some, according to verse number 12, who did not believe in the resurrection. May I read that passage? Now, if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some in Corinth who had begun to give credence to and had begun to give some degree of appreciation to, well, there isn't any resurrection. And Paul launched into an incredible discussion. In fact, he started by listing a number of logical consequences to what is true if there is no resurrection. And may I list just a few of them. Number one, your faith is vain if there's no resurrection. Not only that, all of us, again referring to those apostles, are false teachers if there's no resurrection because we're teaching that there is one. Not only that, Paul was quick to say, you're still in your sins if there's no resurrection. And one by one, those together with a few other things are all absolute truths if there is no resurrection. And so Paul begins to reason with them. One final thing might be mentioned, if there's no resurrection, that means Jesus couldn't have been raised. That means He wasn't raised either. And therefore, you're still in your sins and none of us have any hope. Now, building from that point, Paul begins to move the discussion by inspiration in this direction. When you arrive at verse number 29, notice it follows verse number 28. And so that verse right before it reads as follows, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. At that point, may I offer this set of thoughts, at least relative to that idea. Consider this with me. Again, the chapter surrounds the topic of the resurrection. But may we never forget, baptism involves resurrection. It always has if it's scriptural, and it always will. A person has died to sin, and that old man of sin has been buried in the waters of baptism, and a new creature in Christ comes forward, comes out of that water. And so there's a resurrection involved here. What is dead is buried. What is now alive is new. Now with that in mind, Paul uses that concept and applies it here and does so like this. Else, verse 29, What shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Each and every one of us as sinners was dead unto God. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that we are all dead in trespasses and sins. And therefore, every one of us prior to going into that water, we were spiritually dead. Every one of us. So Paul thus asked the Corinthians, those of you there who don't believe in a resurrection, then why were you baptized? Why did you submit yourself in submission to the characteristic matter in baptism? For in that particular act, a resurrection took place. Your old man died, the new man came forth, and in so doing, you'll notice because you were spiritually dead, that's why you were baptized, and that's why any of us were. He then goes on to say this, If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And so again, he is not saying anything about being baptized for someone physically that has died. 
But it has to do with one's spiritual separation from God. And in that light, all of us appreciate that we, in fact, were baptized for that reason. Because we were dead. And we wanted to be alive. Now that consideration of our opening question this evening, I hope, has moved us to think about some of the matters that as we give thought to passages in the Word of God, sometimes words can have a latitude of meaning, as the word dead did in this case. On to question number two. Another good question, and this one, Reads like this. Can a man be an elder if his grown children are not faithful, but he meets the other requirements of elders? I'm wanting to clarify verses stating elders must keep control of their children, and children should not be accused of dissipation and rebellion, also include grown adult children. Isn't that a good question? Certainly the person who is asking, and I never know who, who asks these questions, and I appreciate that, but certainly it's another very good one, isn't it? What about an elder? Would you be turning to 1 Timothy 3, and we will be giving some thought to a couple of the verses found in that passage. As I mentioned, this particular question clearly has to do with the eldership. And the New Testament does teach rather clearly that there is a God-authorized office of the elder. Clearly, as the New Testament describes it, those men that occupy that office occupy an exceedingly high office. Having found that text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll notice that that office of an elder is such that there are qualifications that must be in place in order for a gentleman to occupy that office. Maybe it's wise to reflect on, again, God's infinite wisdom. We are not at liberty just to select anybody and put them in that position and suspect that it's going to work out well. Rather, God listed a host of qualifications which any man must satisfy in order that he might be installed in the position of an elder. The particular question that's been asked here relates, of course, to verses 4 and 5. And then we'll turn over to Titus in just a moment and read another verse. But among the qualifications listed is this one, "...one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God?" And it's easy to see, isn't it, that the infinite wisdom of God in putting that in place was to give careful thought to a proving ground in which a man could be recognized as effective and as efficient in ruling well his family. Because if he's done that well, then at least there is high likelihood that he will rule the church well. But of course, the other side of that logic is this. If he has not illustrated and demonstrated and shown the character of leading his family well, then why would you ever think that he'd be able to lead the church well. And so, his own family is a tremendous proving ground in which you can see the characteristic capability of this man as he would be a servant who could lead well the church. So the person's question then is this, specifically about grown children. But could I ask us that we at least give some thought along the way what about the children in this gentleman's house? 
Well, first of all, having read the text in 1 Timothy, did you notice one of the statements that was made is, having his children in subjection. If those children are rebellious to that man while they're living under his roof, that man is not qualified to serve as an elder. If they do not submit to his leadership, if they do not submit to his instructions, whether they like them or not, then that man is not suited to be an elder. Because that verse said they must be in subjection to him. But look over in Titus chapter 1. As Paul wrote to Titus, also listing some of these qualifications, you'll notice that there are some different wordings that are used here. And may I ask that you consider especially verse number 6. Titus 1 verse 6. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. And it's that verse that seemingly was the one primarily prompting the question because the particular translation that was referenced in the wording of the question was children not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And that word dissipation is the rendering that many translations use in the wording of Titus 1 verse 6. And so, having at least given some thought to those children still at home, what about grown children? That son or that daughter that has reached an age of moving out on his or her own, and maybe in so doing have chosen to not be faithful to the Lord anymore. Now clearly, you notice faithfulness was at least listed, and so one must appreciate that some number of that man's children should be faithful Christians. Now clearly that may have been the case while they were under his direct tutelage and while they were living under his roof, but what about that circumstance where in they have left home now? Must they all still be faithful? Must that still be considered to be so? And so might you notice those other words, do they still have to be in subjection to him? Well, the first thing we might notice is it is the will of God that husbands and wives establish their own homes. That was even true in the days of Adam, wasn't it? Do you recall what he said in Genesis 2.24? As he spoke about Eve, the woman that was created and brought to him, he said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave father and mother. Once you've left father and mother, that man, though dad, he still is. He doesn't control that household anymore. It is not his household anymore. And mom, though still mother, she is. She doesn't control that household anymore. You'll notice, leave father and mother. And so it is, we must be a bit cautious and never trample on any of those thoughts in the Word of God. So in this case, it does seem as if there is a bit of consideration, almost a degree of latitude. Maybe it could be described or even presented like this. While in that man's house, surely there must be an evident submission and an evident subjection to at least a fair number of his children. Now, once those children leave home, it would seem that the qualifications here enlisted are such that they would involve an instilling of a way of life, an instilling of the way of truth in the hearts and minds of those children. And so it would seem even for a while after they leave the house, 
it would be expected that one could perhaps see elements in faithfulness and elements of givenness to the teachings of the Lord. For after all, if they're simply being made to do it while they're in the house, then there's clearly something lacking. They never came to make the faith their own while they were there. Now the fact is, once they've left the house and there is again a period of faithfulness, and for a while they have adhered to the truth that they had seen exemplified in the life of their father and mother, and the things they had learned in years gone by in their connection to the church. Still, the fact is, there will come a time they'll have to decide for themselves. It would seem then that once they have reached that point and they make that decision, that couldn't be directly held against that man any longer. For he did his part. He raised them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and it was exemplified by the fact for a while they were faithful, even when they were no longer under His roof. But the fact does remain that just like Demas, they made a choice to go the way of the world, 2 Timothy 4.10, and they made a choice to rebel against the God whom their dad had worshipped and who they saw demonstrated so often in his life. I realize that that answer to this question is somewhat involved, but it seems as if the Word of God demands it to be that way. While they're in His house, they need to be in subjection to Him. But once they leave, have they at least for a while shown faithfulness and givenness to the things that they had seen and the kind of life they once had lived? And then after a while, after some period of time, if they choose to go the way of the world... What else could the Father have done? They are not in His house anymore. He does not control them any longer in that way. I hope that those thoughts are in some way helpful as you give thought to this particular question. The wording that that is found in Titus 1.6 is certainly a very interesting one. As this next slide intends to summarize some of what we just discussed, it is an issue that brings us back to thinking about how important it is to think carefully about those men that one installs as an elder. Do they meet the qualifications? And among other things, as you look at their children, do they illustrate that they have the way of life, the way of instruction, as exemplified by the lives those children are now living? That's something we should be able to look at and to have confidence in. And we can put our trust in them that they will help me get to heaven. For after all, in Hebrews 13, 17, they rule over us. And we want them to do so always joyfully and never in a sense of being regretful on that day of judgment. The third question of the night tonight takes us to this question. You might be turning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 4, asks this question. As we make ready to read it, let me just read the question that was asked. What books were the Ephesians to read, Ephesians 3 verse 4, since the entire Bible had not yet been completed? Interestingly, you and I see the nature and the character of that kind of a question. That verse, verse 4 says, How, "...whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ." 
I suspect that that's one of those verses that is somewhat easy to read past in that, well, you and I have no trouble reading it. You and I know that with the invention of the printing press in the year 1455 by Johann Gutenberg, Bibles have now come to be very freely available. It's easy to obtain a Bible. Denise and I, not long ago, just in the dollar store, you see all kinds of them on the rack, and they're King James Version of the Bible. They're very inexpensive, both Old and New Testament. It's not difficult these days to obtain a Bible. But yet, put yourself into the position of, say, some of the members of the church at Ephesus in the middle of the first century. When you read, but they didn't have the completed Bible as we do. Well, what did they have? Well, you and I realize that the fullness of the Word of God in terms of all 27 New Testament books, the last one, it would seem, was not written till very late in the first century. That means it was perhaps 25 to 30 years after this. Not only that, many of the other books that had been written, maybe they were rather localized in the sense that they were addressed to certain congregations and generally had not been disseminated. Be that as it may, note again exactly what is said. Whereby, when you read, did you note the word whereby that begins the verse? That comes from a word that signifies or carries with it the thought, connecting it to the very words that not only were written earlier in this same chapter, but also in the previous chapters as well. It would seem that Paul's primary thrust related to the Ephesian letter itself. When you read this writing, which of course would have been easily presented to them, and there would come a particular occasion wherein this entire epistle would have been read in their hearing, and maybe even copies would soon thereafter have at least been available to a selected few, and they could have been shared amongst the others. But when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. There was sufficient information in the Ephesian epistle that they might understand and know the character and the greatness of that which had been listed and that which had been presented. But may I also say that we seemingly have evidence in other particular New Testament letters that there may have been other possibilities as well that would even have augmented this thinking one of which might take us to Galatians chapter 1. Look over there to, to, to the wording that appeared. Now, I fully realize that the city of Ephesus was not in the region of Galatia. I'm not making that claim at all. But maybe a pattern that might be of some benefit to us. But in Galatians chapter 1, notice verse 2 with me. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches, note the plural word, of Galatia. So Paul penned a letter. We recognize it as the six chapters of the book of Galatians, but notice it was to be shared by congregations in the region of Galatia. So one epistle collectively shared. Isn't that interesting? That's by no means the only time we have an observation like that. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Now remember that Galatian letter seemingly fit into a pattern of behavior like that. But consider with me the fourth chapter of the Colossian letter. 
verse number 16 reads like this, And when this epistle, so that's the book of Colossians, is read among you, so among the church at Colossae, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. So there was a congregation of the Lord's people in the city of Laodicea. The same letter, namely the book of Colossians, that had been shared and read in the church at Colossae was also to be read in the church at Laodicea. So the same letter, but let's read on. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So the Laodiceans had received an epistle as well, and the church at Colossae was told they needed to read it. So there was a sharing of those epistles, or maybe we should say a collective and communal appreciation of the benefit shared by each one. And what had been told of the Colossians was also something worthwhile for the Laodiceans, and vice versa. So maybe, as you and I give thought to the city of Ephesus, remember, there were a number of well-known cities not that far away. Remember, Miletus was not far away. In Acts chapter 20, it was the elders from that congregation, so we know there was a faithful church at Miletus. Or rather, we know there was a church at Ephesus that met with Paul at Miletus. And so it was that maybe there was a sharing about things like what we've said in other regions or at least other possibilities in the New Testament. It does seem that that reference in Ephesians 3 was primarily to the book of Ephesians, but certainly one couldn't rule out the possibility of its reference even to other matters, other books that were written to other congregations as well. As we close this lesson tonight, we've looked at three questions one of which touched baptism for the dead, one of which related to elders and their children, grown children in particular, and one that connected or at least asked us to consider about the Word of God and what they were able to read. You might keep in mind in light of that last one that the scrolls upon which even the Old Testament had been written were at least generally not very available. They were just much too expensive. They, again, were much, much rarely in positions to be owned or possessed by individuals. And for that reason, you and I know today that how blessed we are to have the Word of God. So easily accessible, so freely available, and in such a way that we can read it at leisure, and we can study it and rightly divide it, and apply to our hearts the blessed teachings we find, of course, contained in it. As always... If you have questions, put them in that box. I hope that they're generally beneficial to all of us. But as we close this lesson tonight, maybe there is one or more in this assembly that recognizes that all is not well with your soul. It may have nothing directly to do with any of the three questions we've considered this evening, but maybe upon your reflection on the Word of God in whatever form it's taken has caused you to be perturbed. Maybe you've lost sleep in recent nights because you know that something isn't right and your conscience is bothering you. I'm glad it's bothering you if that's the case. And I hope it bothers you some more. And I hope it prompts you eventually to take the steps that you know you need to take. Jesus died upon the cross and He wants you to be a faithful servant of His. And if you've lost your way, it's not His fault. 
But he so much implores you to come back to a position in faithfulness, to walk day by day in the words of 1 John 1 verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Don't you want that daily cleansing, that continual cleansing? If we could be of assistance this evening, it'd be our desire and joy to help you. If you'll repent of sins and make confession of them, God's promised to forgive them. And through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that can be done so quickly. It requires, of course, your repentance and confession, and we'd be honored to pray to God that those things be so. This evening, if we can be of help, won't you come while together we stand and sing this elected song?